Well, we're back here on another fantastic episode of In Context Theology. I'm here with Lindley. We are doing something a little different on this one, and that is recording during the daytime because we both happen to be in between jobs right now as waiting for the, the new ones to start. So, you know, I, I do have some time on a 2, 2 p.m. on a Thursday afternoon to record this. So uh, does it feel a little bit weird with uh, the sunlight being out, Lindley? I feel like uh, we've been like a nocturnal recorders yeah we have been doing night things uh maybe this will be a a good thing we'll see how it turns out but well, I, uh, maybe a change yeah. of pace so to speak obviously is, yeah. is different but it's a different feel for sure what if this becomes like the way we have to do it now wow we have so much more energy <laughs> the thought process was way better actually the very first podcast we ever did together we recorded it during the day I was also in between jobs at that <laughs> point a couple of years ago, um, and uh, or maybe it was just an off day or something like that. But yeah, we recorded at Lindley's house. Uh, this was pre-COVID, which seems like an eternity ago. Um, so we've we've rode the storms together. So uh, here we are, back where we started. And these episodes we're going to be doing now. We were talking about it right before we hit record. Uh, we we are we're planning for two a two part series on Jesus. Uh, it might go for more. Uh, obviously, we can't really sum up everything about Jesus in this lifetime. Uh, but we thought maybe two two podcast episodes we could do yeah, that. Maybe, uh, maybe. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. So anyway, we're, what we want to do is start off talking about the humanity of Jesus, and then the second episode will be focusing on the deity of Jesus, and we'll get into a little bit more about what that means and why that is. So um, we're taking a lot of content here from uh courses and, and uh lessons that lindley's talked in the past i believe is that right lindley yeah that's correct yeah it, this this will be overall a little more let me use the term in quotes a little more academic in its approach it'll be structured in such a manner um that based on courses i've taken or have taught in the past so yeah so it'll yeah. be a little bit different in that regards yeah, so I think it'll be good. Uh, it's proven content to work here. So um, I'm going to uh, turn it over to Lindley to kind of walk us through here. And I'll still be here asking a lot of questions for, uh, I don't want to call us the plebeians or the commoners, but if you identify with the questions I ask, you know what type of person you are. So I'm here for you folks. Right. Well, th thank you, Jonathan. And, and I thought this was a, <clears throat> an important topic, and it's important in our time. I think the further we get away um, from you know, from hum as humanity further gets away from the actual events of the life of Christ, the more difficult it is for us to look back retrospectively and say that was real. That's what it means. That's of value. That's of substance. Um, and understand what actually transpired. So the purpose of this, these couple of podcasts, is really to try and understand who Jesus is, what he's accomplished, and what he means to us, um, especially for us who call ourselves Christians, right? It means to be the followers of Christ, and as such, this is extremely important. I think the other thing to understand, too, is, is that what I've found in just common everyday um, occurrence of life is that many people just simply use the name Jesus as if it's some sort of like a uh, an amulet or some sort of special words or some sort of magical potion that if we just recite that, that those, that's those sounds that represent his name, Jesus, that somehow all things will work out the way that we intend them to. Um, or they maybe use his name as a curse, or people may use his name as a substitute for some other sort of positive vibe they feel. And they lack the sense of what it actually means or who he is. So again, it's going to be maybe a little technical, maybe a little bit academic in this approach, but the value for this is, is that is to what I believe to be fundamentally rooted in what it means to be a Christian. As I think it is important to understand what we believe drives how we live, what is important to us, and how to make decisions. So, with that in mind, let me begin with a citation of a statement of the centrality of Jesus of Nazareth to what it means to be a Christian. And I'm taking this from Pope John Paul's the second encyclical letter, Faith and Reason, in 1998. I've, I've noticed you're a fan of Pope John Paul II. He's come uh, up quite a few times. <laughs> He's, uh, uh, po the Pope has come up a couple different times. Uh, uh, this Benedict has come up. Uh, John Paul is coming up. Um, and yes... Um, only because I think in some 
cases, their statements are so profound, so clear, so crystal clear that it's worth citing them. Um, so yeah, so um, do I agree with everything uh, Pope John Paul says? Um, I the answer is no, um, but I think in this particular case, when when you hear what we ha he has to say in this case, I think we would agree. Don't let him fool you, everybody. He's got a poster of Pope John Paul II <laughs> on his wall. I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> All right, let All right, me begin. Sorry. Quote, in the incarnation of the Son of God, we see forged the enduring and definitive synthesis which the human mind of itself could not even have imagined. The eternal enters time. The whole lies hidden in the part. God takes on a human face. The truth communicated in Christ's revelation is therefore no longer confined to a particular place or culture, but is offered to every man and woman who would welcome it as the word which is the absolutely valid source of meaning for human life. Now, in Christ, all have access to the Father, since by His death and resurrection, Christ has bestowed the divine life which the first Adam had refused. Through this revelation, men and women are offered the ultimate truth about their own life and about the goal of history. As the Constitution Gaudium et Spes puts it, only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light. Seen in any other terms, the mystery of personal existence remains an insoluble riddle. Where might the human being seek the answer to dramatic questions such as pain, the suffering of, of the innocent, and death, if not in light of the streaming from the mystery of Christ's passion, his death, and resurrection? So I think it's, it, it is a wonderful statement about the central importance about Jesus of Nazareth. He is the central figure in human history. All of history revolves around him, whether we like to admit it or not. So I thought that was a great way to begin this conversation, which is to talk about Christ himself. Yeah, it's a great quote. I might have to get my, my own poster of Pope there. <laughs> uh, yeah, it might come in handy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let me make some preliminary comments on this passage, which we deal with. Uh, we will deal with later this evening. It is a profound statement by the Pope or Patriarch at Rome. Um, for those of you who have taken church history in the past, um, uh, Patriarch is an appropriate term in this particular case. The Incarnation is not just a humanly conceived event. This is important. First, a perception of this depth is something beyond human conception. Because who would have thought to have an Incarnation? Who would have thought, in, from a human perspective, that that would be the solution? So clearly there's something profound about the Incarnation of Jesus Christ. The whole concept is actually a totally foreign idea. The Eternal comes into our space and time. These are categories, as those who follow philosophy will know, of Immanuel Kant, space and time. They are also the categories used by people like Isaac Newton. So, the fundamental constructs on how we attain knowledge about the world are space and time. There's the openness of this gospel message. Everyone can partake. It is not a, for a single culture particular place or a particular time. Christianity is a transcendent experience. That's because the person it's rooted in, in Jesus Christ, is transcendent himself. And yet, at the same time, he remains imminent in who he is. The meaning of life is now available for understanding in light of the Christ event. That is his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And then, I love the word used by John Paul, the mystery of this event. Mystery here means a concept which is not fully understood. It's beyond human understanding in its completeness. But yet, nonetheless, it is something that we experience. And some things, though we experience them, are not well understood. So, in, I'm not surprised by the use of the word mystery here. Yeah. Now, let me furthermore add the words of Karl Barth on the subject, and Barth is an extremely important figure. If you follow the Karl Barth uh, podcast that we did a few weeks ago, Barth says, When the Holy Scripture speaks of God, it does not permit us to let our attentions or thoughts wander at random. When the Holy Scripture speaks of God, it concentrates our attention and thoughts upon one single point. And what it is to be known at this point 
If we ask further concerning the one point upon which, according to Scripture, our attention and thoughts should and must be concentrated, then from first to last, the Bible directs us to the name of Jesus Christ. So, end quote. So there we go. Jesus Christ, the central person of the Scriptures, the central figure in human history, the one around whom all things revolves. Why? Because it is God become flesh, God amongst man, and God who, who initiated all these activities. All right, let me add a couple of additional thoughts on this passage that Bart made, uh, and, and, and let's talk about it in this particular way. Bart was a Swiss theologian who wrote over 10,000 pages. We talked about that in the past, uh, and he is writing a systematic theology centered on the person of Jesus Christ. He viewed all of theology through a Christological lens. Bart explores the whole of Christian doctrine, presenting it as necessarily and entirely Christocentric. He presents Jesus Christ as the unique and complete Word of God made flesh. The Bible, therefore, functions as an attestation, therefore, in a twofold manner. One, the stories and traditions of Israel, along with the prophetic accounts of the Old Testament, point forward in time to the man Jesus Christ as the culmination of creation and the beginning of the kingdom of God. And two, the gospel accounts and the Pauline epistles act as witnesses pointing backwards to the culmination and the perfection of the covenant of God manifested in Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is not surprising that Bart says we are directed to the name of Jesus. So it should be quite clear why we need to study Jesus. He is the answer to the questions of life's mysteries. And simultaneously, we are directed to him as the answer. Outside of Jesus, there is no answer. All right, so there we go. We have a bit of a opening salvo when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. And, and so, if you sorry, if you have any questions on kind of what we just talked about there with Bart, go back and listen to the other podcast about Carl Bart. We talked about the Christocentric uh, view he had, where everything is culminates through Jesus. And we talk a little bit more in depth there. So, if any questions on that, uh, last episode is great, great place to start. No, good point. Got to advocate for our show here, you know. Nobody, <laughs> no, we're going to sponsors. You know? That's gotta right. Do it. We got to find a sponsor. We do have to find a sponsor. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, there's much to be said on this topic, obviously. Um, Jesus is central, and therefore, if he's central, there's a lot to be said. I do find it thrilling and absolutely inspiring going through the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Remember, we are here to study the doctrine of Jesus Christ. So this is going to be, again, a little technical. And I, at this point, I love this famous statement. Um, uh, one of Luther's followers, uh, a fellow reformer by the name of Philip Melanchthon, made the famous statement, quote, to know Christ is to know his benefits. And I think as every Christian should recognize is that what we have benefited and been blessed in this life comes because we are experience of Christ. But what can we do to deepen that? And that is to know him, right? In completeness, the more we know of him, the greater the benefits to us. Hmm. I think so, that's a really interesting point too, because you think about oftentimes we attribute things to Jesus or God that maybe weren't, or in like you... Or you have a misguided view of like, oh, this person's rich, they are blessed by God. Or this person's healthy, they are blessed by God. And that's not necessarily true. And it starts to warp how you pray and how you seek out. And this is something I'm learning in my own personal life last few years, too, of like, what does God actually guarantee? Like, what is what what happens when we pray? What's a guarantee? There's, there's very few things that I think actually are. Uh, one is that he will be with us. He will be our comforter. He will be our guide. You don't always get everything that you pray for in, in terms of asking, but God tells us to ask. So I think to know Christ is to know his benefits would be, I, you even maybe take it a little farther, it's like to actually know who Christ is would allow you to know his benefits and, and what is that, what we can actually attribute to him versus, you know, prosperity gospel, all that kind of stuff. Because um, I think it's really easy to feel like, oh, God doesn't know who I am anymore because I'm in a point of struggle or I'm dealing with something that somebody else isn't dealing with. You it's it's real, a real misconception of like oh we don't actually know Jesus because we we don't know his benefits and vice versa does that make sense 
Oh, absolutely. I, I think, and that is the point of trying through these two podcasts is to better understand Jesus Christ, to understand the impact in our lives and what that impact is. It's not a financial benefit per se. It's mm-hmm. not just simply a, you know, a life of with, with rose-colored glasses, et cetera, et cetera. It is a fundamental different approach, understanding what God had intended from the beginning, what he intends for us in this life, and what he intends for us in the future, and how our lives become intertwined with his and why they do that and what does that how do we benefit from that seeing that beatific vision seeing what it's like to enter into a relationship with someone so transcendently greater than i am and yet at the same time recognizing that my puniness and my finiteness in my finitude that i am still somehow attached to he who is greater in every way shape and form than i am that is god himself and his interest in me and so to me that ultimately is what matters most is that he cares about me when you know life seems so difficult knowing that he cares about me is of supreme value Mm -hmm. yeah he's transcendently good too in every way shape and form yes yep All right. Well, let's start to frame up some of this discussion because I think this is important for us. And like you said, we're going to split this into two sections. One talking really about the humanity of Christ and the second about the the deity or the divinity of Christ. Um, But let me start once again uh, with one of, uh, let me just continue on here and introduce again, reintroduce the great Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. And let's see what Kierkegaard had to say about this. Kierkegaard talked about two types of religiousness, Christianity and the Socratic religion. The latter, the Socratic religion, he called religiousness A. This is the religion of imminence because it presupposes that truth is present within the individual. And what is required for truth to emerge is merely that someone act as a midwife helping the knowing subject, that is you or I, to give birth to that truth, to bring it out, to extract it from us. It's called the Mayudic tradition. Okay? So that's the Socratic understanding of what religious value is all about. And commonly, the Socratic method is you ask a lot of questions, right, as you teach someone. That's right. And when you're asking those questions, what are you trying to do? You're trying to pull out from the person the right answers because you believe the answers are within them. Yeah, and it's, can I just say, it's super annoying because my old boss used to do it to me. I'm like, just tell me what I'm supposed to do. No, but it is effective. <laughs> right, it is effective. But so that's one approach. That, but that, but that belies a, the, the modern, or so the traditional view of religion, that somehow there's this truth within you, and if we ask the right questions and we shape your life the right way, that truth will emerge, okay? But Kierkegaard said, no, there's religiousness B, which he called it, which is the religion of Jesus, This is the religion of otherness, he called it. The student is destitute of truth, or even worse, exists in a state of error. The individual therefore requires a teacher who brings the truth and even provides the condition necessary for its reception. Such a teacher is savior and redeemer, and his coming is, quote, the fullness of time. So, it is a paradox, that Kierkegaard said, of an eternal God who makes himself meaningful in a temporal moment in the person of Jesus. And this paradox is grasped through faith and not by reason. So, for Kierkegaard, religiousness is not just sufficient. Being religious is not what, he, what is demanded of us. We need to have a specific type of religion, one that has a savior arriving on the scene in the fullness of time. Now, Kierkegaard hmm. is not implying that reason has no place, but relationship with Jesus is an act of faith, and f- there is a massive dependency on something external to us. God comes to us, and God is for us. And here we should be hearing the echoes of Schleiermacher and Bart, deep emphasis on something outside of ourselves, as, and then therefore acting of faith and not reason alone. Interesting. So this religiousness B really dismantles that analogy of the blind man all feeling up the uh, elephant and feeling a different part. And it's like, what? oh, you know, oh, it's, uh, see, all religions are the same. The truth is within you. I always wondered about that, by the way. How'd they get that elephant to stand still, you know? And then what about the guy that thought he was 
Hand went a little too far underneath, you know. I'm just, I'm just saying. Like, there's a lot of parts of an elephant, and we can't all be. Uh, but yeah, this basically says like, there's, there's not like, the religiousness. A would be like, there's truth inside of all of us, and then we just gotta find, live your truth. That's like the, you know, throwaway term you hear about these days. I gotta live my truth. But saying religiousness B is that you wouldn't know what truth is outside of Jesus intervening and stepping in and loving us first. Is that right? hundred percent. That is so on point. There just is something that we are bereft of the truth, and therefore the Savior must come. And I like the way that Kierkegaard chose the word Savior. He must mm-hmm. come to us. He is saving us. He must come at the right time, and he does come in the mm. fullness of time. And that is the difference between trying to figure it out ourselves or work our way into it. Versus saying, I receive this. And that is a clear differentiation between Christianity and every other religion. One which says, hey, figure it out yourself. Work really hard. Make sure you follow these rules and regulations. Which sometimes Christianity can become. But the central heart of Christianity is something else. It's an act of faith which God gives to us in a moment in a particular Mm -hmm. point in time, expressed, understood as the person of Jesus Christ who is the Savior of the world. And we this you've used that phrase a, a few times here, and I'm not sure if this is something Kierkegaard referenced as well, the fullness of time. Um, and I, that's coming from Galatians chapter 4. I just, let me read this real quick. Um, Galatians 4 verse 3 uh, and on. It says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved by elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a, and if a son, then an heir to God. So this talks about, um, you know, we were we were slaves. We were uh, enslaved to the, what this interpretation says, the element, elementary principles of the world. And so it goes to your point of what Jesus stepped in, showed us truth, not that we could achieve it on our own. There wasn't truth inside of us. We were slaves. We were dead. Uh, and then when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. Yes, absolutely. It's it's actually one of my top three verses in the Bible. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. There's nothing better than that. Because it, it, it makes quite clear that as human history has unfolded, at every different point in time, it had to unfold in a particular way, shape, and form. And the perfect time for the arrival of the Savior was the time that he actually came. Had he come mm-hmm. earlier, it would have been difficult for Christ to, to the message of Christ to be propagated throughout the known world. Had he come later, he may have been lost in some place and time because the, the world had gone through various changes. Had he come now, so many more people would have missed out on him. And in fact, he may get lost in the, in the, in the, in, in the inf- other influences of this world. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I, it just, it is unbelievable that God's timing is perfect in every way, shape, and form. And if you think about it, the result is the name of Jesus here we are 2,000 years later, is available and has been preached in every country, in every part of the world. Some people may agree with him. Some people would disagree with who he is. Some people may deny who he, his claims. But nonetheless, the name of Jesus has been preached throughout the world. It has propagated throughout the world. It's not surprising. And I agree that the fullness of time had come. And that was the perfect time. You do have to wonder if Jesus came now, what that would be like. You know, it's like, would he show up on Broadway? Like this week, Jesus presents his one man show. <laughs> Next week, the Jonas Brothers. You know, it's <laughs> it'd be wild. I just say it'd be wild. Probably less, much less effective. Uh, we definitely would kick him out of our churches. I can tell you that much. <laughs> would not do well with that whole love your neighbor stuff. Um, all right. Continue, Lindley. This is good stuff. All right. So, so let's 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 take a look now at, at some of the more uh, uh, what I would call uh, data points um, as it relates to, to 
we're gonna and again this episode is uh we're focusing on humanity this is where that's we're correct starting. yeah so the fact of the historical person jesus of nazareth is an uncontroversial point i mean denying his existence would be the equivalent of denying that anyone has ever existed it's quite foolish uh, and when i look back retrospectively in some of our academic uh colleagues uh or people who claim to be you know uh academics throughout the history of mankind um only within the probably past past 150 years or so that people actually deny that the person Jesus ever existed. And it's quite foolish to think that that actually happened, right? Uh, we have yeah. more evidence for him than we do for anybody else. Um, it's having unsurprising, though. Existed. I mean, people are still fighting at the world is round, so you never know. <laughs> never. What's that? There's a quote attributed to Einstein, and I don't know if I actually said this, but he's like, there's only two infinite things in the world. The universe and human stupidity, and I'm not sure about the first. <laughs> I don't know if it's Einstein or not, but I always like that. Uh, that's probably true. Whether it's him or not, it's pretty true and pretty accurate. So Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem of Judea um, in 4 BCE. We're using the academic term BCE here, but BC is fine. And he died in 29, uh, again, we're using the academic term CE here, standing for Common Era in Jerusalem. Jesus first came to general attention at the time of his baptism, just prior to his public ministry. He was known to those around him as the carpenter of Nazareth, a town in Galilee, and as the son of Joseph. Matthew and Luke report that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, famous in Jewish history as the city of David. It is likely that Jesus was born not later than 4 BCE, the year of King Herod's death. The term Christ, by the way, is actually a title and not a proper name, as I sometimes hear people say it. And it comes from the Greek term Christos, meaning anointed, or the one chosen by God. In the Bible, it is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. So there are three key concepts in discussing Jesus. One, his incarnation, his humanity, and his deity, right? The incarnation is a fundamental theological teaching of, uh, uh, of the Orthodox Christian tradition. Okay, and here by I mean Orthodox Christian teaching, we're talking just the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene tradition. Based on its, on, on its understanding of the New Testament, the incarnation represents the belief that the Son of God, who is the non-created second hypostasis of the triune God, took on a human body and nature and became both man and God. In the Bible, its clearest teaching is John 1.14, which says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the incarnation... As traditionally defined by those churches that adhere to the Council of Chalcedon, the divine nature of the Son was united but not mixed with the human nature in one divine person, Jesus Christ, who was both truly God and truly man. This council, by the way, met in 451 um, CE. Would it be accurate to say it's improper to think of Jesus as 50% God, 50% man, but more so 100% God and 100% man? Right, and and that's exactly right, Jonathan. Uh, we want to ensure that we don't think that there's a diminished or impoverished view of his divinity, nor his humanity, because those two things have to be fully there in order for him to do what he ultimately does, which we will talk about in a later stage. I don't want to detract from where you might be going, but can you explain... The non-created second hypostasis of the triune God. Right. So, it, yes. So, in this case, the key phrase here is non-created. There were many versions of what this meant. Was Jesus a created being? Was he some sort of lesser being than God the Father? In, in, as in a hierarchical sense. Was there a point in time that he did not exist? For some people, there is, for some, over in some, what we are now term heretical views, there is that sort of understanding that Jesus was created, there was a point in time he didn't exist. So, this is the statement from Chalcedon that he is non-created. He is mm. self-existent because he is God. He does not need to be brought into existence. He is self-existent. He already is existing, always has, always will be, uh, into mm. the future. Positive, negatively, uh, negatively eternal, positively eternal. So always there. So that's non-created. Okay. The second hypostasis means as part of the triune God, he is part of the same 
essence of God himself. When we say God, this is the mystery of the Trinity, we would use that word, that he also is interwoven into that himself. Jesus has not stopped being God in some way uh, because mm-hmm. he took on humanity. He is still part of the of the divine Trinity and as such experiences life as a man, but as God himself. Okay, so he is gotcha. part of that hypostasis means the states are all unified and not broken apart into separate and distinct um, components. When we use the term son of God, and I, I was reading some this week, actually, the son of man was, a, you know, it's a title from the Old Testament. I think Daniel wrote about it. And Jesus basically took that title and placed it on himself like son of man. I'm, I'm who this prophecy was about. Uh, son of God, is it, are we meant, are we meant to hear that and think of like, the way I am the son of my father, or is it a different type of term? Yeah, obviously we can't fully encompass and understand the, the Trinity, but what are we supposed to do with that son of God? What, what, what should we be thinking about when we say those terms? So there have been many discussions throughout our history about what does the term son of God, son of man mean? Typically in Hebraic thinking, it's not just sonship as we think of father and son in the purest sense. It also is a word that used that is used to mean affinity with. So when we say son of God, we mean his affinity with God. His attributes are like that of God. That's what he is. It's showing that his div- his essence is divine. Mm. When we say son of man, it shows his affinity with mankind. And this is an extremely important thing uh, when we talk about his humanity, that he's not just like us. He is is us in every way shape and form and that's why the writer of hebrews says he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin this is what makes his temptation legitimate this is what makes his life real when jesus uh, you know that famous verse from john 11 35 i think is the shortest verse in the bible jesus wept it's a legitimate weeping when jesus prays he legitimately prays just like we do when jesus walks through the desert when he is he is hungry when he is thirsty when he sees the multitude and he has compassion on them each and every one of those things is legitimate and real because he's a hundred percent like us he's a he's a direct representation of god as the son of god and he's a direct representation of man as the son of man Yes, and even representation can can carry a negative connotation because okay, it's not yeah. that he just represents us, he is that. So he's exactly that. He's exactly God. He's exactly hmm. man. Now, so that's it. So the compl- oh, sorry, the complexity here though, the difficulty that ma- we we and I say we have because everyone has this because it's almost impossible. It's an ineffable sort of a strange thing to talk about is that we don't have any other analogs for this. It's not like there were yeah. 25 other you know, guys that fell into the same category, people or beings that fell into the same category, and therefore we say, oh, Jesus is like that. Jesus was like that guy. Jesus was like that person. Jesus was like yeah. that guy who came. No, 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 no. There's only one Jesus. There's only one mm-hmm. person in all of history that will actually be fully God and fully man. So mm-hmm. yes, it becomes complicated and difficult for us to wrap our brains around that because... A, how do we fully grasp uh, God? We don't. How do we mm. fully grasp ourselves? Well, Kansas, we probably don't do that either. <laughs> yeah. It's fully hard, difficult to grasp these things, uh, yeah, these concepts. There's, there's no analogy that we could ever use to explain it. It's like, you know, when you eat some really good ice cream, you're like, how do I describe this double fudge brownie? Uh, <laughs> makes me like, ah, it's just amazing, you know, like it's amazing. But right. I do want to read, actually, this is my, my, one of my favorite passages is uh, from Colossians chapter one, verse 15. I said, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So this kind of goes to what we were talking about. Uh, For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might have he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of, of his cross. Um, and I want to also point out this what we're discussing, this is 
orthodox mainline baseline Christian views, right? This is like anything you've heard that we've discussed so far, it's it's commonly collective. So if you've heard a difference of opinion on Jesus, that's we would say that's out of the realm of what a common Christian would believe. How how would you classify what we've discussed? Uh, let me be as blunt as I can. Anything that veers away from that definition that we have in Colossians, by the way, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, anything that veers away from that is heretical, as far as I'm concerned. Um, okay. And this is the this is the uh, claim of the church has been for. 2000 years that this is the definition this is the understanding this is the framing of for us to understand who jesus is anything yeah. other I, than that is heretical i love talking about like the councils and these things that have been worked out over the last you know hundreds of years and you know pretty early on to when jesus actually walked the earth because sometimes you can read the bible and be like well that's not what paul meant well, that's like these these statements that the councils will put out is like, this is what this means. This is what we collectively agree to. Um, I think it helps add so much more context and clarity sometimes. Cause sometimes I'm like, I mean, the Bible was long. I wish it was a little bit longer and they would said, said it this way. <laughs> um, so what we're talking about here, I, I felt like that's important to point out is like, this is the collective the last 2000 years. Um, some guy in his basement searching Wikipedia came up with a different theory. That's not really, <laughs> you know, what, what they've been talking about for the last 2000 years. That's so. correct. That's right. This is the, this is the agreed upon words to describe this ineffable person known as Jesus um, and, and and that's really it, and that's what the councils were for. And the councils were there. They had uh, they you know they took into account what they knew for the past four hundred years, four hundred fifty years in this particular case. Um, they took into account uh, the the thoughts and the ideas of everybody. They came together. They took into account the the text that they had, the written text right. that they had, um, as the you know the Bible was being formed in its current canonical form was being formed during this same period of time. And therefore, there were texts that basically declared, made declarations like Colossians, like Book of Hebrews, etc., that talk about Jesus Christ. And, and this is just a formulation and a way to understand in totality, as best we can, and grasp what we can about the person of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. But I want to make it really important. In its totality, I probably will never know anything. And yet, simultaneously, God makes himself known to me. In yes. Jesus Christ, yes, it's yes. a it is it is paradox to use Kierkegaard's term, and Bart is is a big fan of this in the same way. Uh, is that the, the the great and wonderful, the majestic, the the transcendentness of God expressed in Jesus Christ is yet somehow something I can appropriate through faith, and and know. Yes. That's the beauty of it. Yeah, there's this like spiritual knowledge that when it just settles in your soul, you get it, and you're like, I can't explain this, you know, uh, but you feel it, and you know it, and that's that's how I've experienced Jesus. Sometimes it's just like I trying to explain you, trying to give you words, I just fall short. But I know there's this spiritual connection, knowing with our spirit. So, um, yeah, that that to me just fully confirms more of this stuff. Like, oh, it has to be God because <laughs> how else would any of this compute um, in our right. minds? Yes, absolutely. I fully get it. And, and again, it's that experiential aspect of knowing God. Yes. Now we move to the humanity of Christ from a biblical perspective. Now, we cannot overemphasize the humanity of Christ, for it is in his humanity that we have the human condition solved. Given man's sinful nature, it is in Christ that we really and truly experience forgiveness. The validity of the work accomplished in Christ's death, or at least his, its applicability to us as human beings, depends on the reliability of his humanity, just as the efficacy depends on his deity. So what do I mean by that? The beauty of this is that, and the complexity at the same time, is that Jesus' humanity allows him to really be like us, right? So that what he accomplishes is an accomplishment and an overcoming of the human condition. He overcomes sin and the penalty of sin. That's why it's important that he be fully human. If not, then he accomplished nothing. In addition, 
Jesus' intercessory ministry is dependent on his humanity because he is the truly one of us, his experiences, the trials and the temptations. He can empathize completely with our human struggles. So, for example, he experienced hunger, Matthew 4 and 2. He experienced thirst, John 19, 28. Fatigue, John 4 and 6. And then he died, John 19 and 34. 1 John 1 and 1 says, quote, that which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at our and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. End quote. John uses touch because in Greek thinking, touch was considered to be the most reliable of the senses. It was direct perception. There was no intervening mm. medium between the perceiver and the object. John clearly addressing any notion that Jesus was not physical. So let's quickly go back at this, and I want to make this clear. Jesus' humanity is extremely important. Why? Because he enters into the same human condition that we have. And, you know, the existentialists talk about this a lot, the human condition, the, yeah. the sense of loss, the sense of alienation, the sense of uh, where am I in this world? This sort of talk is where do I fit into humanity? Why am I here? These types of existential questions about us means that Jesus participated in, in these exact same experiences. Yeah. Right, So that's important. And then the use of John by the touch aspect, I think, is very powerful as well. How we perceive the world around us. You know, Kant talked about this a lot. Our perceptions are those things which come in through the senses, and then the senses pass this data up to our brains, and our brains then organize and orchestrate this information and provide us back a picture of the world around us. But the Greeks believed that direct perception was possible, not mediated but directly available to us right through the sense of touch and that's why touching jesus was so important so it means that he was physical and real just as we are and i want to i want to jump to uh hebrews chapter 4 uh verse 15 and 16 they said uh for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet he did not sin let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may re receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And not only does this echo what we were talking about just now, it, I, it's a verse that's been pretty close to my heart recently as I've been going through some stressful things with my job and, you know, different things that'll kind of throw me off with like kids and, and all that stuff. And I feel like God gave me this verse of the, the idea that we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. And, like Lindley was just talking about, Jesus has suffered, he's struggled, he knows what it's like to be isolated from friends, he knows what it's like to be hungry, to, he's felt the, every pain that you could feel on this earth. And so sometimes I feel like my problems are not worthy enough to go to God, or if I'm like, if I come to Jesus, I'm going to be like, I'm struggling with this. And he's like, right, get over it, you wimp, you know, but it's not. We have a, a high priest who empathizes us. So when we come to him and we say, hey, I'm struggling with this, he says, I know, and I know what that's like to feel. Come here and let's talk about it. And I think that's why the writer said right after that, let's approach God's throne of grace with confidence um, that we can bring it to Jesus. We, we, he's not looking at us and judging us and thinking, you need to get over this. He's, if anything, he's saying, I know what it's like because I've done it as well. So that's, that's the humanity of Jesus. That's what that gives us is that he's a, he's a God who came down, um, walk the same earth that we walk and he's he's empathizing with us and i think that that word empathize is, is something i hadn't really thought about with jesus my whole life uh, until the last few months here so this is this is timely for me yeah it, it's the word empathize is emphasize empathize emphasize is emphasizing the yeah. completeness of god's understanding of where we are what we experience and as i called it earlier the human condition what it means mm -hmm. to be human he fully gets it yes uh, not yeah. that he couldn't as god but that he that the fact that he took the time to experience it himself is just blows me away that he cares yeah. that much and i think yep. that's really what it is it's his it is that's why god is love he cares that much for us that's right all right, well, let's take a look at a couple of early heresies, I would call them, concerning the humanity of Jesus. And uh, the, the two that I'm going to give really are indicative of, you know, the general set of other early heresies that continue to sometimes 
come into our time and space here in the 21st century, which I think what we're the purpose of this podcast is to help, you know, sort of like fight off against. So the first one is docetism. And what is that? That is the denial of the reality of Jesus' humanity. It is an idea heavily influenced by certain aspects of Greek philosophy. The key thoughts here are that matter is inherently evil and that God is impassable or unchangeable. Impassibility is that God is not affected by anything in this world. God cannot change or suffer. These two ideas imply that Jesus cannot be human. The Docetist central theme was that Jesus only seemed to be human. God could not be associated with matter. Matter is evil. And secondly, the impassibility of God means no change to the nature of God could have taken place in the Incarnation. Jesus was more likely a ghost, an apparition, rather than a real human, and his humanity was just an illusion. So this is critical here. This notion that matter is evil, that the body is evil, this is a... a, a uh, an ideology that's been around for a long time, um, but we must remember that in the when the create in the creation account, for a complete view of humanity, the creation account, the creation of these bodies, God said it was good. Right. Okay. So we must always remember that. So our bodies are good things that God created us to be this way. All right. The second. It's interesting. Uh, I've not well, heard that term before. Dust. Dostacism. Uh, Dostacism? Yeah. Dostacism. Yeah. yeah, so it's basically Jesus was either a figment of someone's imagination or a spirit walking the earth, not taking on flesh. Right. He was an illusion. He was an illusion. Yeah. That it really wasn't a real thing. That what he hmm. did was really, you know, he kind of pretended that he ate. He kind of pretended that he was, you know, like suffering. He really wasn't because, and and, and the re- the rationale is, is in a, in a, if I wanted to, um, uh, spin this in a positive way, the rationale was that God is perfect and, and and not affected by anything evil. And therefore, Jesus himself, if he was God, could not be human. Mm. Gotcha. Right? So they have a high view of God, but they have a low view of humanity. Gotcha. Interesting. Right? Okay. And I'm making the claim, if we go back to the creation story, that God has a high view of humanity. It's a unfortunately a fallen view now because of sin and a Mm -hmm. marred view of humanity and we have this human condition but nonetheless we are what god wants us to be especially and after the salvation of christ gotcha okay Okay. so that's good that's a like a bad Ghostbusters script right there. I guess. <laughs> it is. Yes, it is. The crucifixion of Jesus was just Ghostbusting, I guess, in that view. Okay. And then, with, so the second, the second major category, I would say, of early heresies are called Apollinarianism, which is a view proposed by Apollinaris of Laodicea, and that is that Jesus could not have a human mind, rather that Jesus had a human body and the lower soul, which is a seed of the emotions, you know, this is like some early Greek thoughts, but he had a divine mind. It is the truncation of Christ's humanity. Jesus took on genuine but not complete humanity. This doctrine was condemned by the Council of Constantinople in 381. And so again, what we have is when I say a truncated view of humanity, mm. they're saying, hey, he had a real body. He had, you know, he had like emotions because he did, he did suffer. He did, he, he was hungry. He did thirst. But his mind, they said, was divine. But that's an incomplete because we know that our minds, because again, this, some of this is dependent upon your view of what constitutes a, a human being. The, the, the mind of, of Christ had to be human as well in order for it to be tempted in the mind. He had to yeah. be fully human. Anything else, in my opinion, and I think this was the opinion of the council, is that anything less is incomplete. I think a lot of us believe in Apollinarianism without really realizing Correct. we do, you yes. know, because you think, well, yeah, Jesus didn't sin. I mean, you know, he's God. So that's why, you know, like that's kind of the cop out excuse of like, well, of course he didn't do it because he's got give him a superpower mind. Uh, I'll be honest. I mean, it's kind of a view I like to lean on sometimes when I <laughs> feel like I struggle with something that, you know, like, well, Jesus didn't sin. Well, yeah, well, he was God. But um, so I think it's it's pretty common. It's not as um, 
out there as maybe the other one would seem. However, as you said, it's equally wrong. He was fully of human mind. Um, And we won't, in this episode, probably get into, you know, how did he not sin, but anything like that. But it's good doctrine, I think, to to go over this. It is, again, we just want to stay focused on the fact that he, he is fully human. And this full humanity means that he experience life exactly in the same manner that we do and that's all that's really critical here as we go forward and any view other than that basically is a truncated or an incomplete view of jesus all right so what does this mean then here's what i would say four or five things the first one the atoning death of christ can truly avail for us jesus is not an outsider Okay, number two, Jesus can truly empathize, and you talked about that word earlier, and intercede on our behalf. His intercession is real. Three, Jesus can be our our true example. He laid out what our life can be like. Jesus prayed and was dependent on the Father. No different than we should pray and be dependent on the Father. Four, human nature is good. Jesus took up humanity and showed us that to be human is not evil. It is good. We are God's creation. And fifth and finally, God is not totally transcendent. He is also imminent. He is with us. And he was with us expressly in the person of Jesus Christ in his humanity. So, so there we have it. A picture of Christ Right? Jesus, who is fully human in every way, experiencing what we experience, being like we are, suffering like we are, knowing what it's like to live as a human being, and not shying away from that experience. Beautifully loving us and caring for us. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, I think that's a good wrap for the humanity uh, portion of this. Uh, for our next episode, we're going to cover the deity of Christ. Uh, we'll talk about, um, you know, what the what the Bible says, obviously, about um, him being God and the Son of God. I that was, I think that was, I mean, this is all really good, but that point about the Son of God, Son of Man, some lights went on in my my own mind about, oh, Son of God doesn't mean like his Jesus God only had one Son, you know, like it was like that kind of thing. So. Uh, any closing thoughts here, Lindley, uh, that, that you think would be good for us to take away with this? No, I, I mean, I know it, we just did what we mean, what does this yeah, mean for us, no, but no, anything I th- else? Look, I think just really that, that the humanity of God expressed in Jesus Christ, um, is something we should be thankful for, that God cared that much for us, um, yeah. to come into our space and time. Um, despite his infinity, he loved us in our finitude and he cares for us and, um, that's exciting. That's good news for us. That's the good news. Yeah. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah. There's a song I've, I've liked the last few years by uh, John Mark McMillan called The Road, the Rocks, and the Weeds. And it talks about like these these gods, these Greek gods and that kind of stuff and the image that they had. And basically in the song it says, like, you know, uh, Aphrodite wouldn't weep and Zeus wouldn't have left his throne to come down. He's like, but we have a, you know, and then he says, like, I don't have any answers for a lot of these things in life, but I have a savior who suffers them with me. Um, on the along the road and the rocks and the weeds and I it's just a beautiful picture of, of this savior that we have it's like yeah many other gods that were created or these these stories of like they're, they're these mighty impenetrable forces not incorruptible and unmoving here we have though a, a god who left his throne to come come be with us and to, to struggle with us and he's still with us today and I, I just would encourage everybody to cling to Hebrews 4 is that we have a Savior who, who empathizes with us and a high priest who, who can empathize with our weakness so therefore you approach that throne of grace with confidence that, that he's going to hear you he's going to understand you and that he cares Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. That was a great way to end. All right. We'll see you next time. Maybe we'll be in between jobs again. <laughs> Do another 2 p.m. session. I think it's worked out really well. I'm wide awake, uh, which is nice because uh, sometimes by the end of it, I'm I'm ready for bed. <laughs> so, not because it's boring, just because that's the time I go to bed now. So, All right. Thank you, Lindley. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks, Jonathan.